So this evening I want to talk about the practice that we're doing here in kind of a big context, the the what we're doing and the why and the how of the practice that we're all embarked on for these 10 days. And we've already been tossing around a lot of terms, some of them may be familiar to you, some perhaps not so clear. So I thought I'd just start with defining some of the Uh, words that we're using in our teaching this week. So we've talked about mindfulness, we've talked about samatha, we've talked about samadhi, we've talked about vipassana. They're all kind of related, but they're different aspects of meditation practices, and it's helpful to have a sense of what it is that we're referring to. The first one, mindfulness, Essential. The Pali word is sati, S-A-T-I, and it's the foundation of all of the practices that we do here. The, the simple definition of mindfulness is the simple definition of mindfulness is knowing what your experience is, what you're aware of. But when we're actually cultivating mindfulness intentionally, there's a little bit of reflectiveness that happens with it where we know that we're knowing, we know that we're cultivating mindfulness. So we're sort of doing it um, with with full intention to cultivate something. Because you can be mindful, you know, doing other things. People can be mindful gardening or, you know, being out in nature, but they're not deliberately cultivating the mental factor of sati. But that's what we're doing here and what we do on the retreats that we teach at Spirit Rock. So we're cultivating the ability or the capacity to pay attention, to pay attention in a a deliberate way, intentional attention. This is key. In the Buddhist teaching and tradition, though, it goes beyond just that. There's a whole field of mindfulness now we can sometimes call secular mindfulness or applied mindfulness, where it's being... um, combined with many other facets or many many other experiences. In the Buddhist tradition, what we're actually cultivating we call samasati, or wise or right or beneficial mindfulness. And that's mindfulness as a path factor, as a path, one of the eightfold path factors. That's the, again, if you know the Buddha, he liked lists, four noble truths, fourth noble truth, eightfold path. Uh, the seventh path factor is mindfulness. So it's in um, the context of all of these other um, factors that we develop as we are on this path of awakening. So samasati, wise or right mindfulness, has a purpose, and its purpose is to increase wholesome states of mind, decrease unwholesome ones, and develop insight. So it's, it's, it's cultivated within the context of this path of practice, and it's part of the meditation section of the Eightfold Path, which is the first list on your sheet that you had handed out. The last three factors, effort, mindfulness, and concentration, are all part of the meditation section of the Eightfold Path. What's interesting, when we do the shorthand for the Eightfold Path, Sila Samadhi Panya, ethical conduct, meditation, and wisdom, the meditation section isn't called mindfulness, which is kind of the generic term for meditation. It's called samadhi. 
So it really highlights the, the power and the centrality of concentration in the Buddhist teachings. And mindfulness, there's a little bit of a linearity to the Eightfold Path, no, though it's not it's not certainly not strict, but mindfulness develops or leads to concentration, so they're very related. And then samatha is the practice of tranquility meditation. It's a specific kind of meditation that invites the mind into calm and um, peacefulness. In samatha meditation, we take a simple object, in this case we're mainly using the breath, and we just rest the attention there. All of the other objects and experience can come and go, but we highlight or prefer the breath in this case. Samatha can also be developed out of simplifying our perceptions of whatever our experience is, and we'll talk more about that as the retreat goes on. But the essence of it is always towards calming, tranquility, so any practices that lead to that are called samatha practices. The result of samatha practice is samadhi, is concentration. So that's the next one. I'll talk about samadhi, um, is the Pali term that we usually translate as concentration. It's not a great translation because in English, concentration has a sort of sense of focusing in and, and, and uh, don't bother me, I'm concentrating a narrowness of focus. Samadhi in the, the Buddhist um, practice can be vast. The mind can be extraordinarily spacious, but it's undistracted. It's, it's unified with whatever its object is, and the object can be very refined and small, or it can be, as I said, vast and spacious. The mind st can still be unified and collected basically concentrated in that whole range of experiences. It doesn't have to be narrow or tight. So this is really important to remember. And the literal or definition that you'll see in the Buddha's teachings in what we call the Pali Canon, the, the, the set of um, discourses that have come down to us from the time of the Buddha, he would just say, right samadhi or samadhi is jhana. And jhana are these deep states of absorption that result from samadhi. And again, we'll talk more about those as the retreat goes on. But it takes a lot of time for most people to deepen into these states of absorption. So we don't advertise this retreat as a jhana retreat. We don't guarantee that anyone will experience it. Um, it may happen, but for in this relatively short time, probably not. But it is the direction this practice of samadhi heads is to these states of concentration. But concentration or samadhi is something we can all develop, this ability to collect and unify the mind, to stabilize the mind and have the mind be undistracted. This is what we'll be focusing on this week and this is so helpful for all of us. And we can all improve in that. We can all develop that capacity. And then vipassana, or um, insight meditation, which is, again, what we teach on most retreats here at Spirit Rock. Most meditation centers in our tradition focus on vipassana or insight meditation. Vipassana literally means to see clearly. 
And it means to see clearly into the nature of reality, into the nature of existence, into the nature of this moment. And so the, the, the purpose of that kind of practice is that investigation into what's happening and how is it constructed and what happens to it over time. And the essence of that practice is opening to exploring what we call the three characteristics or marks of existence, that things are impermanent, they're not ultimately satisfying, and that there's no solidity or self at the core of them. So there's investigation, there's, there's a sense of penetrating into the experience and being open to the changing nature of experience. We'll be working with all of these different practices over these 10 days. Our focus, as I've said, is samatha practice leading to samadhi. Um, but we'll also be practicing metta every day, loving-kindness meditation, just as we did this afternoon, because it is a concentration practice in and of itself, and also uh, reminds us of what's a really helpful attitude for the, our practice, which is kindness, acceptance, friendliness. So it's a great support and complement to the samadhi practice. And at the end of our time together we'll actually let go of the simplicity of the breath meditation and open up to vipassana or insight so we can get a taste for ourselves of what we do with a concentrated mind. Concentration is not an end in and of itself. It's always, again, in service of basically awakening. And insight practice is the practice that the Buddha taught that leads to the mind opening to freedom. So this is the field that we'll be working with in our time together. And for most of us in our practice, some of you have been at this retreat many times and done concentration practice. For others of you, it's somewhat new to to focus specifically on it. But most of us in the sort of general retreats that we do, there's a spectrum of practice that we're flowing in, in a retreat. At one end, you could say, is samatha practice, this simplicity, focus, tranquility, calming practices. And at the other end, insight or vipassana, where we're open to changing experience. There's a lot of uh, curiosity and investigation and energy and aliveness to that practice. Most of us, most of the time, are kind of floating somewhere in the middle. We think we're doing vipassana practice, but many people are actually doing samatha. They're, they're focusing mainly on the breath and only going to objects um, to kind of, and people can have this attitude, work them out, get rid of them, so I can come back to the real practice, which is to be with the breath. That's not vipassana. And we'll talk more about that at the end. So what, I'm, what we really hope for this time together is you get to explore these especially the ends of the spectrum, so you know what they're like for yourself, what it's like to really open up the practice, be with changing objects, really explore um, the nature of reality, your inner and outer experience, and what it's like to really simplify. And find this, you could say, refuge, shelter, in the simplicity of the breath and the body. And I think this is a really helpful terrain for us to explore. For many 
people that I talk to that are wanting to meditate, the main complaint or hindrance that they talk about is restlessness. That the mind is busy and the body's uncomfortable. And this is a challenge um, in meditation because we're always feeling that we're being pulled away from being present. It's really a habit that, that our culture cultivates, the habit of restlessness, the habit of distraction, the habit of if, if it doesn't feel good right now, get up and run away, find something else to do, to be, to think about. Here we're really deepening the capacity to be present. As Pema Chodron says, all of our practice is learning to stay. Sort of like a dog training, you know, sit, stay. That's what we're going to be saying all week, sit, stay. No treats, I'm afraid. I've heard that treats are really popular, but maybe down in the kitchen. But The treat will come when the mind actually calms and quiets. If you look at what, as human beings, traditionally, as in, you know, hundreds, thousands of years ago, what, how we spend our time, we, we typically spent it doing very simple tasks, right? Repetitive tasks, whether it was farming or making things, hunt, even further back, hunting, gathering. This kind of repetition of these very um, life uh, necess- necessities, but we're out in nature. We're all responding to the rhythms of nature. And it's so different now. You know, this, this um, emphasis on instant everything, and it used to be, you know, a phone call was kind of radical. Remember, I'm going to show my age here, you know, as soon as you say, remember when? Like answering machines. Like, do I have to talk to an answering machine? And now you're like, oh, thank goodness, the answering machine. Now it's like no answering machine, text. Some people you know you can't phone, you need to text them. So I saw this cartoon just the other day of a, a kind of classic scenario of a dad teaching his daughter to ride a bike. And so the image, you know, she's riding the bike and the dad's running alongside all excited and urging her on, except the little girl has a phone in her hand that she's looking at and the dad's saying, you got it, one hand on the handle, look up from time to time, great job. This is what dads have to do these days, teach you how to text and ride your bike. And I also saw this article a little while ago from the New York Times on a group of brain researchers, so scientists who were studying the brain, but one of them decided he should take a group of his colleagues on a river rafting trip so that they could actually look at what happens to the brain very experientially when it's not so stressed not so busy, all the sti- without all the stimulation and multitasking that they, like most of us probably, are living with. And Strayer, Mr. Strayer was the um, originator of this trip, and he wanted to, he, what he is studying and what he wanted to re- look at very, you know, wasn't like a real scientific experiment, but more um, a real experimental experience. He says, attention is the holy grail. Excuse me. Everything that you're conscious of, everything you let in, everything you remember and you forget depends on it. And actually, just a little side note back to my definitions, the literal meaning of sati, the Pali word sati, is remembering or to remember. So 
the term and the practice of mindfulness has a lot to do with remembering. We often say it's remembering to be mindful. But there's a whole set of studies going on now about the power of mindfulness and paying attention to help people remember. And as Strayer is saying, if you don't pay attention to something very clearly, it's really likely you won't remember it. Anyone relate to that? I know I do. So he says that there... Uh, that understanding how attention works could help in the treatment of a host of maladies like attention deficit disorder, schizophrenia, and depression. And he says that on a day-to-day basis, too much digital stimulation can take people who would be functioning okay and put them in a range where they're not psychologically healthy, just through the stimulation. A seminal study from the University of Michigan has showed that people can better learn after walking in the woods than after walking a busy street. So it's why we put retreat centers out in the country. You know, this environment actually supports, and you could, you know, he's using the word learning, but we are learning. We're learning about ourselves, learning to understand our minds and our hearts. The study indicates that learning centers in the brain become taxed when asked to process information, even during the relatively passive experience of taking in an urban setting. By extension, some scientists believe heavy multitasking fatigues the brain, duh, draining it of the ability to focus. I love these, you know, research where they're like, I could have told you that. You could have saved probably a few million dollars Multitasking tires the brain. And all the ones where they're doing, oh, mindfulness helps people. Yes. But anyway, behavioral studies have shown that performance suffers when people multitask. These researchers are wondering whether attention and focus can take a hit when people merely anticipate the arrival of more digital stimulation. So even, you know, the phone in the pocket or... The, you know, how people are so, talk about training, being trained to respond, beep out the phone, beep out the phone. Just the expectation of that message or email coming in can, can affect us. The expectation of email seems to be taking up our working memory, Mr. Yantis says. Uh, and this, so they're in their trip now, I skipped a lot of this. After a few days, one of them says, time is slowing down. The group has become more reflective, quieter, more focused on their surroundings. Mr. Strayer says the travelers are experiencing a stage of relaxation he calls the third day syndrome. Ever heard of teachers talk about the third day of a retreat as the day you kind of get over it's a reality, you know, it takes some time to adjust to these new conditions, these new situations. And we often struggle a bit, in the, often a bit, uh, in the beginning. But we get over that kind of hump and things start to come together. So the group was experiencing the same thing. Even the more skeptical of the scientists say something is happening to their brains that reinforces their scientific discussions. Something that could be important to helping people cope in a world of constant electronic noise. If we can find out that people are walking around fatigued and not realizing their cognitive potential, what can we do to get us back to our full potential? 
we have an idea. I think you've all figured that out. It's like, give it up. Give it up. Whether it's, you know, certainly coming on retreat, it's one of the blessings of retreat, is actually giving up that constant digital stimulation, that always having to do something. And for those of you that are in that stream, it's like never... How many emails do you write, sorry to, for the delay in getting back to you, but, you know, I was doing this or this happened? Because we're all inundated often with this kind of deluge of requests and information and shares and likes and dislikes and all of that. So this is a precious time to explore that. On that note, I think we... Did we mention it the first night or not? The cell phones. Okay. We did talk about, and I'm sure the managers did, you know, how beneficial it is to give up your devices while you're on retreat. It can be amazing how alluring they are in the tedium of a long retreat afternoon and you're in your room and not quite sure what to do next, check the weather or whatever your doorway drug is of the internet. Um, So often on these longer retreats, we actually invite people to formally give up their devices. So tomorrow morning we'll have a very simple ceremony and I forgot to mention this to Ramona, who probably has to organize something about it. You're prepared, though, aren't you? Sorry. Um, what we'll do is put out envelopes or something, or, no, tape. Tape. You, you'll write your name on your phone. We'll have a basket. And you'll just offer it up, if you're ready and able to do that. You know, there are some circumstances where that may not be possible. Loved one who's ailing or children that need checking in on, but... We used to never have cell phones on. We used to never get cell phone reception here. That was the best thing. And it just kind of gradually came up the hill until, you know, they started beeping in the hall and then you could get a call in your room. Please don't. You know, it's just like these researchers found. Something happens to the brain when we give up this process and really arrive here fully present. So again, tomorrow morning at the 8.15 sit, please bring your devices. There'll be pen and tape out there in the foyer. Bring them in and we'll just do a simple ceremony. You can always go get them back if you find you can't uh, do the retreat without them, but it really does help to enter into the simplicity and the silence to really allow us to be in the beauty that's here, the nature that we so often, well, we might be in, but we're usually walking through it, right? Even if we're going for a walk, we always have an agenda. And here that simplicity of just sitting and walking really make that available. And the support that's offered here of all of us practicing together, very precious. So a lot, a lot to um, open to as we do this practice over these days. One of the things that was really valuable for me in doing an extend, I did many extended periods of um, samadhi practice in in different forms. I learned so much about the art or the skill of, of meditation through doing this practice. Because we really see the impact of the way we're practicing on our experience. It's such a subtle, simple practice. And we're choosing again and again just the breath. So we're not opening up to what's the mind doing and how does the body feel and what's happening here and sights and sounds. 
They can be included, of course, but we keep coming back to this simplicity of the breath. And so we really see the impact of our, the way we're practicing and the necessity of what we call wise effort. It's one of the path factors in the meditation section of the Eightfold Path. What's really necessary for this practice to develop is not trying to force it, not trying to do it through sheer force of will or striving. Um, It needs a balanced or steady effort, just as we were already talking about. So Philip used those uh, the gestures last night of, you know, not backing away, not pressing down, but finding that place of connection where the attention just rests lightly and gently with the breath. This is the attitude that's so helpful. And we'll all move in and out of that. We'll, we'll grasp and clutch and hang on, and then we'll see that's not working and we'll float away and, 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 and get lost. So it's always about trying to find the balance um, in this practice, really keeping it simple. We don't trust that so often. Um, We think there should be more, some secret teaching or technique or way of being with the breath or being with this experience that would kind of open everything up. And there isn't. There really isn't. There's just this simplicity of willingness to come back, connect again, feel the breath, stay with the breath. So there's nothing special or exciting here in the practice itself. Experiences can happen, of course, and we'll talk about those and how to work with them over the retreat, but the essence of it is so simple, really an invitation to trust that. So we've talked about this practice as being unifying the mind, collecting the mind, non-distraction. It's not a bearing down. It's not the don't disturb me, I'm concentrating. It has a fluidity and a flexibility to it that allows this steadiness to develop. So if you find that your forehead's getting puckered up, that your jaw is gripping, that you, you know, have this sense of tightness, that's a sign. Over-efforting trying too hard, really always best to open up, relax, start again. And in thinking about um, practicing in this style, in this way, what uh, I've developed is the seven factors of concentration. On your list, there's the seven factors of awakening, which you might be very familiar with, this list isn't on because these are the lists from the Buddha's teachings. I made this one up. But as I thought about what really helps us deepen and, and, and maintain this practice, these are the ones that I came up with. So they're the factors of concentration. And all of these we'll talk about at different times in different ways. Go into them more. The first one is relaxation. You'll hear us say that again and again and again. Relax, soften, find an easeful way of sitting. Again, we we offer that in any kind of meditation instruction, but it's particularly important here. The mind can't rest on the breath, on the subtle object of the breath, if there's tightness or tension. 
in the mind or the body. So relaxation, ease, in the mind, in the body. This will be the constant uh, invitation. And then the next one is more about attitude. And the attitude is that of contentment or happiness. It's not something that we can just will into being, and I'll talk more about this in a little bit, but it's so essential that we're basically okay, you could say happy, it's the metta kind of feeling, friendly, doing this practice, being here, being with the breath. This is something that does develop over time, but that's the attitude that's helpful. And then continuity, we've already mentioned that a couple of times, or steadfastness, this showing up again and again and again. And by continuity, I don't mean that as soon as you wake up in the morning until you put your head on the pillow at night, there's this seamless flow of mindfulness and concentration. No. What we're referring to are these factors that are on your list as the first two of the jhana factors, vitaka and vichara, and Adrian will probably talk about these tomorrow night, but they're essential where we're... Taka is the aiming of attention, vichara is the sustaining of attention. And we do that over and over again with an in-breath, with an out-breath, with a, with a step in our walking, um, with a sound. This sense of beginning again and sustaining just in a momentary way, but then doing it again and doing it again. So this continuity out of these moments that we string together and really see, I don't have a a mala, um, meditation, the concentration like the strings of of, um, the beads on a string in a a mala, in a meditation um, uh, mala, necklace? (laughs) This must have another word. Rosary, little Catholic. (laughs) Um, anyway, I think you know what I mean. String of beads, where we're just joining them together. You know, sometimes there's a gap between the beads, but ultimately we want to bring them all together. And so not in a kind of tight way, but just the willingness to begin again, over and over again. So the continuity. The fourth is this balanced effort that I already mentioned, not too tight, not too loose. You know, not over-striving, but not just floating around and waiting for samadhi to descend from the skies. It doesn't usually. Uh, Perhaps if you were here for six months it might, but not in ten days. So this balanced effort, not too tight, not too loose. And then stillness. Stillness of body, stillness of mind. Again, what we invite you into at the beginning of a meditation, if the body can be relatively still, really invites the mind into that same kind of stillness and vice versa. Not something we can again fix or do out of sheer will. It's an invitation and almost a preferring. We have to start preferring um, the the simplicity, the stillness, the calm. And that leads me to the sixth one, which is simplicity. It really means as you go through your day, when there are choices, choosing the simpler one. Letting go of busyness. 
And it's amazing how even on a retreat where most things are taken care of you, you don't have to do your laundry, someone's cooking your meals, someone else is washing up, maybe you're washing up, but the other time someone else is washing up. Very simple. You only have the clothes you brought with you. How, how many of you already have thought, I need to go back to my room and wash those socks in case I don't have some on Thursday. You know, just the mind picking up things to do. You know, I need to go down and see what the horses are doing. What were they doing? Yes, whatever it is, let it go. It doesn't mean you can't do those things, but notice the energy that you're bringing to them. And this um, opens into a, a realm of practice we call guarding the sense doors. And this is where you, you take care not to let your energy go out, particularly through the eyes. It's not a rigid, don't look at anything kind of thing, but actually out of kind of protecting your meditative space and also offering that to others. You know, you don't have to know what your neighbor is doing. You know, you don't have to kind of check everything out that's here. It's just this very gentle restraint around the senses, particularly the eyes. And then we, f- we can develop or deepen this really simple practice. I love this quote from Suzuki Roshi, the great Zen master who founded San Francisco Zen Center. He says, in Zazen practice, we say, and Zazen is uh, Zen meditation, we say your mind should be concentrated on your breathing, but the way to keep your mind on your breathing is to forget all about yourself and just to sit and feel your breathing. If you are concentrated on your breathing, you will forget yourself. And if you forget yourself, you will be concentrated on your breathing. I do not know which is first. So this is what we do. We let go of the busyness of the self-involvement and focus on the breathing And as we focus on the breathing, the busyness and the self-involvement tends to dissipate. Really an essential development in the practice. And then lastly, surrender, renunciation. There's a giving up here. On any retreat there is um, to give up the distractions, the comforts of home, the relationships that you have, whatever it is that... um, you cherish in in your life, we give most of that up in coming on retreat. But here there's another level of surrender that I've kind of been touching on. We surrender to the breath, to having that be what we care about. And so all of the other concerns we let go as as best we can. And we surrender to the schedule, to just sitting when the schedule says sit and walking when it says walk just very simply, again, giving up that busyness of doing something else, and even giving up other practices. There's more than enough being offered here with the breath. We'll talk about other ways of, of, of being in with the experience, uh, the metta practice. The simplicity and the surrender to this is really so key. So they're the seven factors of concentration. And a lot of these we'll be expanding on as we go through our time together. I wanted to give you this handout um, just to give you a sense of the centrality of concentration in the Buddhist teachings. All of these really 
prominent lists and um, sutta references where concentration is right there um, in the, the center of this deepening of practice. We won't be talking about all of these different lists. We'll probably touch on some of them. But I think it's just helpful to see. I always put, I put concentration in bold, so hopefully it stands out a bit. What are the preceding factors? We call those proximate factors. What are the factors that are being pointed to as necessary to cultivate so the mind can steady and unify into concentration? And what you'll often see is the proximate cause is sukha. And sukha is this beautiful Pali term that means happiness or contentment. One teacher likes to call it happy contentment of mind and body. There's a, sukha is this sweet state of mind where there's nothing more needed. Nothing needs to be pushed away, nothing needs to be added. And I just think it's really important for us to know that, that that's what supports concentration deepening. So the Anapanisati Sutta, which is the famous last list on your sheet, is the famous uh, teaching on developing breath meditation all the way to the end of the path. And in the, the third tetrad, the four stages are experiencing the mind, so getting to know the mind through the breath, gladdening the mind, so that's the sukha kind of factor, then that leads to concentration and then that leads to liberation. So it's right there again and again. Um, it's talked about in relationship to the hindrances. And the, one of the definitions of concentration or experiential definitions is that the hindrances are at bay. They're absent. And it's one of, why, one of the reasons why people love getting concentrated is the mind isn't so disturbed by the hindrances. So from the Diganikaya, uh, the text says, when they know the five hindrances are absent within them, gladness arises. And being glad, gra- rapture arises. Because of rapture, their body becomes tranquil. With their body tranquilized, they feel happiness. And with happiness, their mind becomes concentrated. And it then goes on to deepen into the states of jhana and then to liberating insight. But that central section, gladness, rapture, tranquility, happiness, these are the kinds of qualities, states of mind, that really support the concentration deepening. And so effort is on the list, Vayama, one of the path factors. Virya, energy, is on the list, one of the factors of awakening. So they are important and lead to concentration, but they need to be skillful. We need to engage them skillfully. Striving, judging, fixing, and comparing are not on any of these lists, as Philip pointed to last night. Not helpful, not helpful to sweeten the mind, to relax the mind, to calm the mind. These are the qualities that are really helpful. To seclude the mind, as I've been talking about. To collect and unify the attention in the present moment. And when I talk about guarding the sense doors, it's not not enjoying nature. You know, I can't look, I can't look, you know. No, but it's not to make that the source of your happiness, not going out looking 
for distraction. Of course, let nature inform you. It's one of the blameless pleasures that the Buddha often spoke about as as being able to uh, delight the mind and heart. But we don't go looking for that to just distract and take us away. So this renunciation again of our stories. I love Sylvia Borstein's description of her practice. She always talks to help herself. Jesus, now Sylvia, sit down and don't tell yourself stories. Good advice. Philip will often say, let's not be disturbed by the disturbances, meaning stuff will happen, but we don't need to kind of pick it up and roll around with it. We can just let it be. This is a big part of what we'll be talking about and practicing and seeing that there's more of a choice than we perhaps thought possible. Most of us are used to jumping on the train, whatever comes up, whatever feeling, emotion, memory, thought, we're just like on it and in it. And this is pointing to a different way of being with our experience. And again, this simplicity. And as I was saying, when I gave the instructions in the um, practice session just before lunch, it's finding the breath in everything, breath and. And again, this is, you know, it's not that different from how we normally might teach on a, on a regular retreat, but there is a difference in highlighting for this extended period the breath and letting everything else be in the background as best we can. So as again, as I said today, this background foreground, whatever we're doing, sitting, walking, in the in-between, the mealtimes, as I was talking about before lunch, can we Bring the breath with us. If it gets too complicated, we always come back to what's predominant. That will also maintain the continuity. But as best we can, and again, this is something that happens over a number of days, just like those researchers on their rafting trip. We can't expect to have that kind of continuity or just be with the breath all the time. I don't expect that at all. But we begin preferring the breath or allowing the breath to come more into the foreground. So that's our practice. We don't have to have perfect conditions to do this. It's not about trying to find perfect conditions. Stuff will happen here. You know, we're human beings, imperfect human beings. So externally stuff will happen through your fellow students, through conditions, work meditation. The body will complain, the mind will complain, but we're not looking to find perfect conditions because they don't exist. Ajahn Chah, the Thai forest meditation master, um, when he was practicing intensively before he be you know, became uh, stabilized in his practice, had the confusion that a lot of us have about practice. So this is what he says. When I was younger, I looked for peace in the wrong way. I'd sit to practice samadhi and my mind wouldn't settle down. It ran around wildly and no matter how I tried to bring it back, it wouldn't return. Sound familiar? If it did come back, it wouldn't stay. What to do? Should I stop breathing? I used to try that. I'd hold my breath and try and force my mind to stop moving, but it would still move. I'd hold the breath longer, but the only thing that could come of holding the breath longer and longer was that I would eventually die. 
It was similar when I felt my meditation was disturbed by sounds. I filled my ears with wax. I stuffed them really tight so that I couldn't hear anything. It seemed like a good thing. No more outside sounds to bother me. But I started thinking about it. If not hearing or seeing anything is part of being awakened, then the deaf should all be enlightened. The blind should all be enlightened. The completely deaf should be arahants. So it's not about stopping experience. It's not about, even as I'm talking about, guarding the sense doors, not seeing, not hearing, but not turning the mind to that, not getting embroiled in that. There's one teacher we had here, I think last year, Pat Coffey, he said, kept saying, these conditions are perfect for practice. And that's the thing. They are. They're always perfect for practice. But we have to make these choices. Do we get disturbed or not? Do we pay attention to that or not? And what is it like every time that choice comes up? To prefer simplicity, to prefer ease, to prefer the breath the stillness of mind and body. And this stillness that I'm talking about isn't so much in the object because the breath moves, the body moves, the body's alive. It's in the awareness itself. That's what's getting stilled. The awareness itself is stilling and calming even as the objects move. And so we start preferring stillness to movement. Most of us are kind of fascinated by shiny objects, right? Movement, glitter, whatever. What's that? What's that? This is the coming into stillness again and again. Again, not through force of will or effort or rejection or aversion, but out of this surrender, this letting go that I've been speaking about, this relaxing If something really is disturbing for us, the body is really complaining, if the mind is really upset, of course we need to pay attention to that, respond skillfully and kindly to that. And Adrian will talk more about that tomorrow. So that always is an option. But in the context of this practice, if we're able, we just come back to the simplicity of breath. Just breath. And let everything else be in the background. Again, as best we can. Use your skillfulness. This is part of the wise effort. So this is the the themes that we'll be repeating and examining and talking about in our days together. One of the challenges of being on a retreat like this where we're focusing on this simple practice, but a very clearly defined practice of concentrating and calming the mind is the paradox of having a goal, having an intention to be with the breath, to calm the mind, and yet not clinging or craving for that. This, the tension between those two is a great place of learning. Many many of you may be dwelled in this field before where you have sincerity of intention, a a sense of what this practice can be like. Maybe you've had an experience of being really concentrated. We often say the worst thing that can happen to a meditator is to have a good experience because what do we do? We want to reproduce it. We want to maintain it. We want to hold on to it. And we can't. 
So how do we hold that sense that there is something to develop here? You wouldn't be here if you didn't think that that was so, right? If there wasn't some benefit to developing a, a collected and unified mind, we all think there's a benefit. It's why we've done this practice. But if we hold that with a sense of grasping or trying to make it happen, it will just lead to frustration, failure, and exhaustion. Believe me, we've all tried it. And I know that my sitting here saying this will not stop you from doing it. (laughs) That's what's eternally fascinating about the human mind. But I'll say it anyway, it doesn't work. So we have to be in that tension between you know, a heartful aspiration and intention for ourselves to know there's benefit here to be gained, but not to hold on to it. We have to let go of that in the moment and take care of the moment. Take care of this breath. The rest we have no control over. It develops out of these moments of connection. So how to to do that without gaining mind? Again, I could say a lot more about that, but it, it, we, we are in this territory all the time, and it's so rich, so rich, so much learning, what I've been talking about, this wise effort. And to acknowledge that 10 days is relatively short, again, it's a good period of practice, but this, to really deepen into the states of jhana that I talked about, for most people, takes time. I often say that uh, we don't have analog clocks anymore. My, uh, mindfulness is digital. You know, I could say to you, be mindful, and you can, right? If you know what mindfulness is, you can just be mindful in a moment. Concentration is analog. It's like the old style clock. It takes time. You can see kind of the movement of the hands as they, they go. Uh, we need to both hold that all we can take care of is this moment, this breath, this experience, and there's a development or a a momentum through the continuity that builds. But if we lean forward too much into that, then the mind tightens, and it actually pushes away the object, pushes away the potential or the capacity for dropping in and for peace and for ease. So... Enjoy the ride. And in, it's hard to say um, if there is benefit in this struggle that we, we will have. I don't doubt it. I'll be talking to you and you'll be saying, but I just wanted to hold on to... No. But learn from it. Be willing to wake up and see the patterns of the mind. And we can all deepen our capacity for this steadiness of mind. And we can all know and learn this terrain this spectrum of practices that I spoke about um, between the calming practices, samatha and vipassana or insight. I think that's one of the great gifts of this retreat is really exploring that and learning how to make those shifts and changes in a skillful way. So, there is, there, as I said, there is, there is great benefit to this practice. It's why we teach this retreat, why you've come here, why we practice it ourselves. I'll leave you with the words of someone who's done this retreat and they were registering for a month, a month-long retreat 
And I, li- I was so touched by what they said in their application that I asked if I could share it with people, and this person said yes. So this is what they said. I can feel myself becoming a happier, more mindful, kinder and more generous person as I continue to practice. I find that I can fall back into a very enlivened, radiating, happy, empty place that I first discovered on retreat. And I'm continually using it as a support to stay mindful and generous while dealing with the challenges of my day-to-day life. In addition to my sitting practice, I also have a practice of regular, brisk, mindful walking to help me stay connected to the sensations in my body. I feel from the inside that I'm rewiring my neural networks through the concentration. The impact of the whole body breathing and the long retreats has been indescribable. Access to an ongoing resource of happiness that I'm using to heal and reshape my neurotic habits and patterns. As I continue to connect to that place inside of me in my daily life, it supports me becoming more skillful in my actions and becoming a better, more generous, compassionate human being. Lovely, inspiring words from the breath meditation and really committing to this practice of mindfulness, samatha, and samadhi. So this is our path, our practice for these days together. I look forward to sharing it with you. So let's just let the words settle into silence before we move into the walking meditation. Thank you for your attention. We have about 35 minutes for some walking in the cool night air uh, before our last sit together at 9 o'clock where we'll finish with some chanting. And I know this first day of retreat is often a long day and the schedule says half an hour. We'll actually shorten it even a little from that. So to encourage you to come. So please come join us for some sitting with chanting at 9 o'clock. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.